Some of you might have seen me before, some not. Uh, my connections to this uh, association go back to actually to 1996 when uh, my good friend Ajahn Viradhammo uh, arranged, uh, I was having a sabbatical, a bit of a break from my time as abbot at Chittaviveka in England and he arranged it to be a road trip and he made organised with the ATBA and uh, you get a minibus and Chris Chris Constable drove we drove down to the South Island we had a month tramping and hiking and exploring the South Island uh, memorable it stays with me a long time <laughs> I can still remember it and that was all just Dana his generosity sheer goodwill yeah. on behalf of the Auckland Theravada Buddhist Association as it then was maybe some of you were there then probably <coughs> not, not that many <laughs> but the memory stays because that's the nature of mind even now I can still picture images of it and those images come to mind but most often what came to mind was the fact that it was offered we didn't ask for it it was a free will offering uh, and uh, so it gives me some pleasure to be able to uh, come back and maybe offer a few uh, support as a gesture of uh, gratitude uh, for your this association for what it stands for and the goodwill, generosity that keep the whole thing going through ordinary people making perhaps extraordinary efforts mm. uh, that's the that's the hallmark ordinary people making extraordinary efforts <laughs> and by making extraordinary efforts they become Extraordinary. <laughs> this is the way it's always gone. Remember, you have now this uh, very large association of monasteries based upon what Bapong. What Bapong was nothing in 1950, it was nothing. And then, Ajahn Chah came in about 1953, I think, sat down under a tree, hung up his mosquito net umbrella <laughs> in this ruined, deserted forest. Um, local people came round, built him a very simple kuti, kept his practice going. People got gathered round, looking for his teaching guidance. A few more huts got built. They go for arms round in the local village, just get a handful of sticky rice and some chili peppers, maybe a few leaves, nothing much to eat. Didn't matter. Keep going. And through that simplicity of enunciation, resolution and response, you know, more huts, bigger, bigger, more people, more disciples. Then people saying, Oh, could we have a monastery over here? Now we have over 300 <laughs> all over the world growing from that, that one tree. 
And you can liken that to the Buddha's exposition gave one person sitting under a tree. <laughs> no, no big uh, organization, no publicity, <laughs> not funded by anything, just, just doing pure practice, simply, steadily, with resolution, people get interested, it grows, it grows, it grows, this is the way it is. Yeah. And so if one keep with this, it takes time, but keep with this, time doesn't matter. What matters is purity, resolution, staying in tune with the Dhamma. The rest of it evolves. Now, nowadays we have kinds of habits committees and Zoom meetings and conferences and get-togethers to keep the whole thing together. Yeah. Uh, people in Canada having a Zoom meeting with people in New Zealand, getting up in the middle of the night to try to get the time zones all <laughs> linked up so they can act together. That's the main thing that uh, Lumpur Cha taught uh, based upon this purity was the need for that to be held in communion. As you know, acting together, everything gets amplified much stronger than one person. This is the way it's always been. The Buddha started with himself, taught five, that grew to sixty, and so on and so on and so on. And poor Charles starts with himself, then a handful of monks, and then gradually the whole thing expands. And then it gets stronger. It gets stronger because... Uh, every human being brings their own parami, their own strength, their own patience, their own resolution, their own commitment to it. All adds up. And also the quality of um, communion means that people are different, which is good. So you get a slightly different take on it, a slightly different angle, a slightly different flavouring to it, different tonality to it. It's like a can cook rice in many different ways. You can have different steamed or boiled or fried or whatever, made into fritters or pates or soup. <laughs> it's still rice. <laughs> and some people bring it out as soup, some bring it out as porridge, some people bring it out as steamed rice, sticky rice, but it's still rice. But, you know, so. And that difference means it keeps it very human and alive because different people are attracted to slightly different tastes different flavours, different qualities. Yet the fundamental quality of it always is purity. Mm. Purity means that we both um, is can be held in several ways. One is as a sense of moral purity, you know, based upon the five precepts. Then you have purity in terms of uh, restraining, moderating the energies of the mind. So they're not rough, abrupt, uh, you know, they're, they're soothing, they're steady, uh, particularly with our speech. It's considered gentle, affectionate, warm, you know, easy to listen to, gladdening. You know, not just about conveying information, but tonalities. So we develop it this way through restraining the energies. It's called sangwara. And you have indriya samvara, which means you, you restrain 
the energies that rush out through the particularly through the thinking mind so that they are held carefully is this actually the right way to talk to this person is this the right time just because it's a big issue for me right now is she ready for it how do I bring it across the right time the right place so when you have cultivation of samwara it means you have to be quite wise reflect, notice, understand, take your time so this is where we develop wisdom from morality through knowing what to say, what not to say (laughs) the right time to say it whether it's useful or not and this itself is a tremendous skill because of all forms of what we bring forth physical forms, we bring forth physical action most powerful is verbal this is where we can easily just slash someone with a few words or lift them up squash them or or raise them up comfort them or disparage them with a few words so it's very powerful karma speech karma involves writing also so anything of this nature wait a minute it's really accurate, right time, right place. And the Buddha, when he gave his advice, he said, well, there are lots of things that I know, but I don't speak of all of them. Yeah. But when it's the right time and the right place, I say what's suitable for this particular person. And he says, that which is not true and not useful, I don't say at all. It's not true, it's not useful, I don't bother to say it. If it is true but not useful, I don't bother to say it. (laughs) If it's true and useful, I find the right time and the right place to say it in the right manner. Whether it's pleasant or sometimes unpleasant, when things have to be said that are perhaps challenging or... sense of this is incorrect and the Buddha knew that you can see many cases in the suttas where the Buddha does express his sense of dissatisfaction with the disciples who find the right time, right place say this is incorrect, why it's incorrect and this is all done with a mind of compassion because it's a recognition that if we don't get some correction then we're in trouble you know, if you don't get any feedback, how are you going to learn? If you don't get anybody to remind you the right way, kindly, this is causes this this thing causes these results. How are you going to get any guidance? And they said, then this is considered death. Death and destruction, because. You know, you just, your heart rushes on with no guidance. It's like a car with no brakes and no steering wheel. Where's that going to go? So we also look for correction and how that's done. And so this is, we can 
train in this these ways, and then you see the results. Yeah. Nothing is so gladdening as the support, the respect, the compassion, and even the wise correction of another human being. This is not book learning, this is human learning. This is where we really learn deeply. When we learn, we have a duty to model that and carry out what we require from our teachers and guides to live in that way. That's that's our act of gratitude to the Buddha and the noble ones. We aspire to live in their footsteps, to follow in their way. You go like this, you can't really, you're going to grow. And it's very important to consider this because most of the time we're not really getting very good role models to look at. <laughs> look in the world around you, it's petty-minded, tyrants, greed, confusion, you know, people grabbing at this, that and the other, and accusing each other, ranting over, twittering each other. <laughs> you know, all kinds of things. <laughs> and, but if you take a practice like the five precepts, and you can see with that, you can see the, the outside form of it, which is, for example, to refraining from killing creatures. Now you can say that pretty easy, refraining from killing creatures, and that's a good thing to do. But uh, if you're contemplative, you look at the quality of harmlessness. You actually treasure the quality of harmlessness. It's not just a matter of right and wrong. You know, this is bad, this is good. But actually, do you value harmlessness? What does harmlessness make possible? You know, we pick up that quality and take it into your heart. And what, does it, what does it feel like? That it's gentle, sensitive, but it's also strong because it restrains those dismissive or attitudes or cutting words or... You know, it acts as a as a guardian against these defilements taking over. So you strengthen that way. And you feel it's your duty to carry that. And someone who trains is called a sila dara, one who carries, lifts up the precepts like a valuable treasure. You know, harmlessness, and then not taking what's not given. One is developing contentment contentment, right? This is enough. This is enough. Mm -hmm. Clearly for the monastic order, that's a very important principle. You never ask. You say, whatever people would like to bring forth, that's fine. Nothing happens, we'll get by. Tomorrow's another day. And it's good to reflect on these models. Because everything in the world is saying, don't be content, get get a new one. <laughs> Buy a new one. Get more of them. Get it bigger, more, newer, faster. You know, upgrade it. Where does that go? Just mind, restless, agitation, seething. There's a word rarely used in the English language. It's a rare word, 
it's the word enough. <laughs> I have you try to spell it enough. <laughs> I have enough <laughs> to get through the day. I have enough. <laughs> There's always possible of more, but enough. You know, enough food, enough clothes, enough shelter. When you pick this one up, and in this sense of contentment, not taking that which isn't given, not even considering, looking out for, then the restrains the senses and you're freeing yourself from one of the most powerful diseases that human beings suffer from very prevalent disease very destructive disease it's called consumerism and this disease of consumerism eats planets (laughs) it eats animals it eats forests it eats everything up so, you know, I think all the isms that have been in the world, this is the probably the most prevalent and uh, dangerous one because it seems so harmless and, and enjoyable. You know, if, if it, you know, when you actually see the results of consumerism, the poisons and the pollution and the destruction, you see the bitter results, gold mines, gold mining, you know, Rivers ruined through gold. What's gold worth? A piece of metal? What is it? What's the good about that? You know? And yet, worth, people kill for it, steal for it, lie for it, store it up, hoard it. What is it? Can't eat it? Can't drink it? It's not very strong, you can't cut anything with it? Pathetic. Yet we poison rivers with mercury and arsenic to get this stuff and people die mining this stuff. This is the craziness. When you see the gold ring, it looks pretty nice in a jeweler shop. Lovely, clean, nice, bright, shiny. And the wise person looks behind it and sees the trail. Where did that come from? Where did that come from? And you bear in mind, nothing material comes from us, comes from the planet. Nothing material. We can't produce anything. And everything comes from the planet. And we didn't ask permission. <laughs> we just took it. And you know, so one of the nice things about Vimuti going there is seeing actually paying back planting trees, you know, looking after life, paying something back. A beautiful action to somehow respect the planet and be content. A little kuti, small kuti to live in, it's enough. Short is enough. One meal a day is enough. It's enough. In India. Because when your mind is restrained and cultivated, then you're feeding on virtue. You're feeding, feeling happy through restraint and contentment and 
good behaviour because your mind hasn't got regret, grudges, fears, you know, they're not there. These are these are actually poisonous. They don't they poisonous. You know, mind with regret, mind with guilt, is a sad, pressed, compressed, agitated mind, isn't it? It's not healthy. Boundless, it's not liberated. Mm-hmm. Mind with ill, win it, ill wood in it is poison. A mind with craving in it is inflamed. You cure these poisons, the mind is beautiful, the heart is beautiful, lovely place, so you can enjoy it. Mm-hmm. So you contemplate these things, restraint. Right speech, you know, sobriety. You don't need drink, you don't need alcohol, it doesn't support life. Why bother? You see huge areas of the planet being devoted to growing wine, grapes for wine. <laughs> killing killing animals to stop them eating it. <laughs> so we then you go to the shop, it looks very nice. What's behind it? Trail of destruction. What comes out the other end of it? Heedlessness, recklessness, carelessness. Take too much, people really lose it. Crime. Yeah. Yeah. So the sense of honour, not just to keep these, but to see and taste the results of a mind that's steady, content with itself, Enjoying its cleanness, enjoying its its sobriety, enjoying it because it is fruitful. You cultivate like that, and when you cultivate like that together, there's a tremendous uh, field of blessings that's generated. And this is the word that's used: a field of blessings. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than you. It's something that arises like a kind of a force field. And this is the, certainly what Lumpur Cha recommended. Many forest monasteries, their star would be to go off to practice on your own. You know, just maybe come out once a day, have a food, in arms round, then go back to your kuti on your own. Well, that's one way of doing it. And there's, yeah, you can understand that. Uh, Lumpur Chah would almost never allow people to be on their own very long. He said, because you're on your own, you get you get samadhi, but you don't get much wisdom. You get wisdom for interacting with other people, because this is where you've got to learn to be very tolerant, patient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and also learn that different people see things different ways. Mm-hmm. And, you see, and you begin to see how... You, your own mind has just got one way of seeing things. This is the right way. This is this way. And this, this is a kind of subtle quality of um, conceit. This is the right way. When you get like that, a wise person is concerned. Uh-oh, I'm getting a bit fixed here. Let's see if I can get some other angles on this, because otherwise I get attached to a view. 
An attachment to views and opinions is one of the most powerful forms of attachment. Once you've begun to let go of sense pleasures, sense gratification, which isn't that too difficult, the next big fetter, the next big obstacle is attachment to views and opinions. My way is the right way. I know it. I've read it. I understand it. This is this, that and the other. And then, then, what's wrong with you? (laughs) And you realise, no, there's no such thing as the right way. So there are ways in which we can, the best way is the way that everybody agrees upon. <laughs> That's the right way. It's the wider and the bigger and the more widespread it is. That's what makes it the right way because more and more people can get on it. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine if the Buddha had said, well, for disciples, I only want this kind of person to be my disciple. I only want a special kind of person to be my disciple. No, he said, beggars, kings, mothers, patriarchs, matriarchs, merchants, farmers, even killers, even murderers, you can all be my disciples. (laughs) The right way is the the bigger the better. (laughs) Because in that we learn to give up our opinions and views, our prejudices and fears, our phobias and angles on things, our views and opinions, the mind gets very broad. When the mind is broad, nothing disturbs it. Mind that's narrow, everything disturbs it. And that's the problem that can occur for people. You know, you go on a retreat and people get angry because somebody moved a cushion. <laughs> true, true. You moved my cushion. <laughs> they get angry. <laughs> Too many people in here. I'm angry, I'm upset, I can't meditate because there's all these people here. Yeah. Get upset about that. Or, yeah. what a, you know, the mind has become so narrow, they think that's meditation. It's to make your mind as narrow and fixed as possible. But within that, there's no room. And eventually you don't even have room for yourself because there's only certain moods you can you can tolerate. You can't be with yourself when you feel sleepy and dull. You think, oh, I can't meditate. I'm too sleepy, I can't meditate. I don't feel well, I can't meditate. My mind's thinking too much, I can't meditate. <laughs> so you get narrower and narrower so you can never meditate. <laughs> But a Wapal Pong, they say, well, you know, you know, you can't you can't meditate when you don't feel so good. What are you gonna feel like when you're dying? When you're dying, when you're deathbed, you're gonna feel good? No. Yeah. Well yeah. When you're dying you're gonna feel comfortable? No. That's when you need to meditate. Because <laughs> if you don't meditate on your deathbed where are you going to go? So you have to learn to be with the uncomfortable and the discordant and the slow and the tedious. You know, and the differences and the challenges just start to widen, 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 accept it all. That's group practice. And that's the way that these monasteries grow. Yeah. And uh, so now, yeah, and then you have to grow with it. 
you know, we started off at Chitta, so there's, I think, six of us, six monks, five or six monks, a couple of Samaneras and Agarika or two, and four women who later became nuns, very small. Yeah. And we did no, practically no organisation. We just get a piece of pencil and paper out, what are we going to do today? I don't know, what do you think? You do this, you do that, you figure it out. And gradually over the years you build up a whole system of safety procedures and workshop procedures and people who are good at this, that and the other and you develop a whole infrastructure and grows like that. But all the time, the more you grow the infrastructure, then the stronger your practice has to get to, to handle it because it's all full of right and wrong. It's all full of, he's got this opinion, they got that opinion. It's all full of that. It's all full of all these procedures you've got to follow. And then you've got to train yourself to be able to not get upset, confused or distressed by all that. And so a lot, a lot of time, it's, that's practice. But the result is that your mind becomes very strong. Strong not in a forceful way, but strong in the ability to receive all kinds of contradictions, disappointments, things going wrong, people not turning up, people quarrelling, stronger and wider and stronger. I refrain from cursing anyone, I refrain from giving up, I refrain from ill will. <laughs> Instead... I refrain from all that, I bring up the quality of harmlessness, I say what's necessary at the right time, right place. And then you get something that really grows. And the results, then you can be with yourself. And often it's the case when you cultivate it that you don't really have much personal regret anymore. Or doubt, or worry. But that which is there you've got the strength and the capacity to resolve it. And that's cultivation. So we should never sort of put uh, morality into one packet and organisation into another packet and meditation into another packet and wisdom into another packet. They all come into the same packet. Then what you're doing, particularly in this, this kind of Dhamma activity, it's all food and it's all challenges and it's all things to test you and learn from and then you get strong and you take that then that mind strong mind stays with you through thick and thin so when we cultivate this kind of situations as you can remember years gone by, you can remember people who've been here, some have passed on, some have moved on, people have come, people have gone, there's probably been disagreements, agreements, disagreements, frustrations, things breaking down. I see when I walk around Vimuchi, I see a huge amount of hard work, just sheer hard work and you know, I recognise every <laughs> every element of that place has been looked at, considered dug shaped with conscience and concern for the future and all that's required people making donations on it.
This place stands for faith, it stands for resolve, it stands for commitment, it stands for sheer perseverance and sacrifice. And this is very commendable. And I think it's really important that you should also, all of you, participate in it, however much. Just bringing food for one day. You're actually tasting the same quality. You know, the same quality. You're tasting the same quality of commitment, endurance, patience, giving, serve. You know, taste that. So then it nourishes you. Because finally, you know, the aim of these places is not, is not really just to build monasteries, it's to develop people. And that's the way the Sangha's always grown. All the monasteries in India got wiped out, destroyed, but Buddhism didn't get wiped out. <laughs> the Dhamma didn't get wiped out. You look around uh, places in Southeast Asia, monasteries have fallen down, temples ruined, and got what? Finished, you know. Barabador gone, these massive complex monasteries and monuments broken down, nobody in. Looked splendid, looked fantastic, looked like they'd last for ages, they didn't. What did last for ages is human beings practicing. That's that's the inheritance. Yeah. And so we're all part of that. We received it, we transmit it, we carry it forward. Yeah. That's the way it's always been. Yeah. And as long as this, as long as this quality continues in the world, the world will be not short of noble ones. So when we drink in these qualities, we can also feel that sense of resolution. To recognise even places where we've made mistakes, we say, oh, what went wrong there? Ah, that's what caught me. You know? So this also is seen as a tremendous uh, source of growth. And the Buddha says, there's no such thing as sin, in no damnation, it's just place navigation errors. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> and then there's it said, that when one wakes up, a stream enterer, someone who's entered the stream, knows that, they wake up and immediately, oh, they say, ah, oh, a transgression has overcome me, you know, this, that and the other. And the Buddha would say, very good. It's really good that you see that, because that which knows that was an error, that which knows that, that quality of knowing, that's the noble one. And every time an error is acknowledged, the noble one, the noble mind, stands up and says, I let myself down there. Right. And then this is how I let it down. This is where I dropped my guard. This is where I was heedless. This is where I wasn't listening properly. This is where my faculties were not restrained. Right. Then make the effort to do better in the future. And so we form that up. We could recognize, unless we're an arahant, it's probably almost certainly the case that we've disappointed or offended each other from time to time. Yeah, so one of the kind of almost very familiar and reliable uh, Buddhist practices called uh, forgiveness, asking forgiveness, and we do this so regularly. We do two things very regularly in the monastery. Well, three things, actually. One is we ask forgiveness. Yeah. 
because the mind that asks forgiveness is a noble mind. It doesn't say, well, you know, everybody does that. You know, you were like this and you said this. So and it says, well, no matter what you said, this was not, this was not beautiful. I want to relinquish that and ask your forgiveness. It doesn't matter who's right and wrong. The quality we're trying to support is the noble one, the noble heart. The noble heart doesn't say, well, I was having a bad day or <laughs> it was your fault. <laughs> It says, notices, that's where I got caught, stop that, and then if I've caused any problems, ask forgiveness. This is so strong a quality that uh, people like the Arahant Sariputta, you know, he was uh, wrongly accused by this monk who had a grudge against him, wrongly accused of knocking up against him. So as soon as he was accused of it, he, he turned and says, Oh, I ask forgiveness if I've offended you in any way. And the monk who, who accused him wrongly was so taken aback by that, he said, oh, it was my fault, I wrongly accused you. But Sariputta didn't ask who was right, just as soon as he even suggested he might have done wrong, he immediately, well, if I've done wrong, said something wrong, you know, then ask forgiveness for it. Because that's the noble gesture, it's the grand gesture. And we do this pretty much steadily as a regular practice in monasteries. Yeah. It also means please bear with me. You know, I, I make mistakes. I, I say clumsy things. Uh, you know, I get it wrong, I get impatient. Please bear with me. So we make this to each other. And we do this regularly, making this to each other. We also ask for admonishment, say, please, please tell me, give me feedback where I'm going astray, please tell me, otherwise I'll be lost. Rather than, you can't tell me, <laughs> I do the best I can, <laughs> which is understandable, defensive, you know, well, you should do, you do the same thing, you know, you don't do that, okay. And if they got it wrong, you saw, okay. So, in this case, Ananda, when he was the Buddha's disciple, he'd spent all these years totally devoted looking after the Buddha. When the Buddha passed away, his monks accused him, saying, well, you know, you, you trod on the Buddha's bathing cloth when you were making it. <laughs> and he said, then ask forgiveness. I apologize for that clumsiness. You know, it is, it is. You know, you do that, ask forgiveness, yeah. and you ask for feedback, yeah. and then you confess offences. You do this every two weeks. Some of these offences are barely, you hardly call them offences, they're just acts of carelessness. You know, like, you know, like forgetting you might have had some fruit juice and kept it more than one night. It's hardly a major sin. But it's all, oh, that was careless, forgetful, that was a loss of mindfulness there. I want to acknowledge that and check that. In this way we keep, we don't let our mind go to sleep. You don't just coast, you keep attentive and alert. And although these things can seem very petty, the overall result is the mind is always awake, like a cat. 
And you know, when a cat lies down, its ear still stays up. It's still <laughs> listening, checking things out. It stays like that. And then you're guarding yourself against carelessness, which is where it all, it all kind of casualness, carelessness, habitualness, in, in, impetuousness, opinionatedness. These are the underlying problems that human beings face. And if we don't have other people, we don't check it. We don't get any cross-checks. This is a value, a tremendous value, why the Sangha is a refuge. Not just the Aryan Sangha, but the quality of communality is a refuge and a training ground, because here we get the cross-references, we get the modelling, we learn to forgive each other, we learn to apologise, you know, and we learn these very important things for keeping the heart open, free from self, free from self-importance, free from self-consciousness, and free from fear. You know, it comes open. You know. These are qualities to cultivate. And even if people have passed away, we recollect them, and ideally, <laughs> you know, we, one of the things that I've noticed particularly, certainly because I've been more associated with Thai people, is when someone is dying, their friends and relatives come round and they have this thing called Ahosikama, which means all their friends and relatives come round and say, of anything we've done or said, please, you know, let's clear it now. Because when the person's gone, it's a lot more difficult. <laughs> Because when they when they when they can't we can't say that's okay, it stays in your heart. So you can find yourself thinking, "Oh, my father! If I hadn't said that, I had have done that." Too late. <laughs> so you've got to work it out slowly. And sometimes it's like that. Just every day, you express gratitude, forgiveness. People have gone before. And, and support this way we live in a way that clears the past which otherwise stays with us we want to clear the past otherwise it stays in us if we clear the past we're really able to be more truly guided in the present and the future is going to work out in the best way and of course this is where Sila you cultivate it, you value it, you reflect upon it, you drink in the qualities of it, you resolve to guard it, you try to extend it. You know, you may think five precepts isn't much, but when you when you really see the how far you can spread that quality of harmlessness in words, speech, thought, creatures great or small, that's that's actually a very big practice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When you look at something like that, uh, you, know, you can actually cultivate it. Uh, so not even holding on to a harmful thought about another person. Because uh, it sticks out. You can smell it. Get rid of that. And you cultivate it. So this is the quality of mindfulness. Bearing it in mind. And then as you develop that, true qualities, the true qualities of virtue really 
bring the meditation into fruition. It's surprising how fatigue, you know, daily troubles, even physical pain drop away when your heart dwells upon purity and you breathe it and stay with it. And the physical problems start to dissolve and your heart is liberated. This is why it's possible. <laughs> you know, this is why it's possible. You can't imagine those people at the time of the Buddha had no pain in their bodies. <laughs> of course they had pain in their bodies. They had sickness. Of course they had, you know, people had suffered, people had suffered wounding or wars or quarrels. Of course they had all that. But the purity of the heart was stronger, dwelt upon, encouraged, so that all that fell away. This is how it's possible. For human beings in this same this same day and age, it's possible for human beings because the same principles apply. If you strengthen and purify the heart, it will it will see you, it will do you good, and you have to know how to do that and keep rehearsing it. Clean, let go, courage, forgive, bless, love each other. This is the true work. These are the things that human beings can produce. We can't produce wood, food, clothing. We have to take them from somewhere else. The things we can produce, love, morality and wisdom. That's our job. So that encouragement, let's keep working at it.